I V M. An ancient Chinese philosopher observed that plants with strong roots grow well, and efforts with the right focus will ensure success. The Belt and Road Cooperation embraces the historical trend of economic globalization, responds to the call for improving the global governance system, and meets people's longing for a better life. Going ahead, we should focus on priorities and project execution, move forward with results-oriented implementation, just like an architect refining the blueprint, and jointly promote high-quality Belt and Road Cooperation. We need to be guided by the principle of extensive consultation, joint contribution, and shared benefits. We need to act in the spirit of multilateralism, pursue cooperation through consultation, and keep all participants motivated. We may, by engaging in bilateral, trilateral, and multilateral cooperation, fully tap into the strength of all participants. Just as a Chinese proverb says, "A tower is built when soil on the earth accumulates." and a river is formed when streams come together welcome to states of anarchy i'm your host hamsini hariharan and every week on the podcast i break down issues in global affairs and foreign policy what you just heard was an excerpt from a speech that the chinese premier xi jinping discovered at the second belt and road forum held in april this year There's a lot that's being said about the One Belt One Road project. But before we dive into it, I think we need to deeply engage with what the basic ideas are behind connectivity projects. Why has connectivity become such an important area in the recent decade? Who are the major players in the Asia Pacific region? How does funding work? How do new multilateral initiatives led by China contend with older multilateral banks? There's a lot to unpack here, and my guest for today is the perfect person to do this with. Ritika Pasi is a fellow at the Observer Research Foundation, where she tracks the Belt and Road Initiative, the Asia-Africa Growth Corridor, and the International North-South Transport Corridor. She's currently working on India's approach to connectivity and the viability of the BRI. But before we get into the conversation with Ritika, let's take a short break to hear from IVM Podcasts. Hey everybody, welcome to another awesome week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you are not following us on social media, please make sure you do. And why aren't you following us? I've been asking you for almost a year now to follow us. Please do follow us. One of the things that I do ask you guys to do every so often is we hear something you like, take a screenshot, tag us on social media. As I mentioned, we're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So this week our Tamil podcast Ponni Selvan is going to complete 100 episodes this Wednesday. Make sure you tune in for that. On Cyrus says Cyrus is joined by Roshan Netalkar. Cyrus and Roshan discuss the eco-friendly music concert that Roshan is putting together. Also check out last week's Cock and Bull. Uh, Raj Kaushal, an old friend of mine, was on that episode, and we had a really interesting conversation that spanned all kinds of different subjects. On advertising is dead. Varun Dagirala is joined by an old friend and head of agency partnerships and creative services at Google India, Aditya Swamy. They talk about the evolving marketer in today's time. On football, should ball host Gaurav Karthik and Siva round up the weekend's fixtures, most notably Liverpool versus Tottenham. On Golgappa with Tripti Khamkar, Tripti is joined by Mandar Bhide, a stand-up comic who talks to her about the business of content and some fun experiences doing shows. Speaking of shows, on Mr. and Mrs. Binge Watch, Janison and Anirudh talk about HBO's new teen drama series Euphoria. And on the Geek Fruit podcast, we have a treat for the Breaking Bad fans. Join hosts Jishnu and Tejas as they discuss El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie. Simplified is back again with part four of their 150th episode. In this episode, they talk about the implications of Brexit and the transformation of Dubai. Speaking of other countries, on postcards from nowhere, Utsav talks about his trip. 
trip to Turkey with his friends and how you can curate your travel to make them the most fun and memorable experiences. On the origin of things, Chuck narrates an interesting story about a Brazilian company that struggled its way through World War II and the Great Depression. On IVM Likes, IVM staffers Jude, Rithika and Madhuri talk about pop culture that moved them and made them more empathetic as people. They also recommend some really cool things that you can check out. And with that, let's get you on with your show. Hi, you're listening to States of Anarchy. I'm Hamsini Hariharan and I'm talking to Rithika Pasi about connectivity and everything that comes with it. Hi Rithika, welcome to States of Anarchy. Hi Hamsini, thank you for having me. All right, so in today's world, the correlation between sort of connectivity and economic growth is really more pronounced than it's ever been. You see a lot that's happening on these two frontiers that always seem sort of connected. So, do you think that's just a trend that's happening? Why has connectivity suddenly become an important topic that all developing countries are talking about? So, connectivity as a trend or as a phenomenon is not new. Hmm. Um we can hark back to the old silk roads 2000 odd years ago. Um more recently, of course, we've had UN efforts in Central Asia, South Asian space. Uh, we have the Trans-Asian Highway hmm. uh, system for instance. And then of course there's been ADB uh, which, the Asian Development the Bank. Asian Development Bank, which has uh, Central Asia and South Asia specific regional economic cooperation strategies, of which transport facilitation and transit corridors form part and parcel. Mm. But this sort of recent enthusiasm for connectivity definitely stems from a recent uh, iteration mm. uh, or a recent step taken by the second biggest economy in the world, China. Mm. In 2013, Chinese President Xi Jinping announced the arrival mm. of the Belt and Road Initiative. At that point, it was known as One Belt, One Road. But the Belt and Road Initiative, BRI, it was at that point six corridors, six economic corridors spread over land mm. and in the maritime space, which sought to deepen economic cooperation, trade and infrastructure connectivity. In fact, there were six layers of connectivity identified. Mm. And that was really the starting point for when connectivity became the buzzword in international politics. Given, of course, not just the status of the country that was announcing this mm -hmm. initiative, but also because of the time at which it was coming at. So you mentioned, for instance, this linkage between connectivity and economic growth. Post the global financial crisis, mm -hmm. the fact that China was taking a step and saying that, okay, uh, this is a solution that we are proposing mm -hmm. to to address the ills of a stagnant global economy uh, and to increase space and to create an enabling environment for development and growth for itself as well as for its partner economies, or so the rhetoric goes. Uh, not just that, but also the scope of the project. It is almost global in its scope, yeah, yeah. geographically, Asia, Europe, and Africa, and now it has extended to, lot, to Latin America, mm. the Caribbean states, also upward to the Arctic, mm. uh, its scope in terms of the areas of engagement. So it's not just trade and infrastructure, but as we have seen, it has expanded into digital uh, Silk Roads, um, the Arctic uh, Silk Road, but also humanitarian aid, mm. financial in initiatives, mergers and acquisitions, hospitality business, football stadiums, so on and so forth. And then the finance that is required. Hmm. Right. It, estimates range from a trillion dollars to four trillion dollars to even eight trillion dollars. So given the scope of this project, hmm. it was very hard to ignore 
on this count as well. And of course, the fact that as China has been increasingly growing, mm-hmm. we talk about emerging powers, we talk about rising powers, and China has, uh, in the recent four or five years, made it clear that it is no longer hiding and biting, mm. that it is now on the world stage, ready to show itself as a great power, to take the mantle as a great power. How well that happens, of course, is a, you yeah. know, remains to be seen. We're seeing that happen. But countries have been trying to understand how to manage China's rise, how to engage with China's rise. So we have seen reactions hmm. from countries and countries that to whichever extent, and that can be debated, of course, but countries that see themselves in some part of the other in strategic competition with China mm. have actually been offering alternatives. And therefore, it's not just the Belt and Road Initiative that we, we talk about when we talk about connectivity, mm. but the U.S., which is coming up with, which is trying to offer strategic alternatives mm. to BRI. We have India, which has been galvanized to relook at its own neighborhood mm. connectivity initiatives. We have other countries that are either offering alternatives or stepping up their engagement. Yeah. Um, that's very interesting. I think I agree with you in the sense that China is also set on proving that it has resources to back what it's been saying on the global stage. But all of this also, because it covers such a wide scope, you wonder what connectivity is. When the first time people referred to the Belt and Road, you would think that the road was continental and the belt would be maritime, but it's actually the converse. The opposite, right? Yes. Um So how do you think what constitutes connectivity? So that is, again, one of the reasons why we can't say that connectivity is something new that has been, you know, that that has emerged right now or it's uh, China that has come. Nothing like that. Mm. India, for instance, right, in its own neighborhood has connectivity, whether in terms of people, Hmm. movement, whether in terms of goods and trade, whether in terms of money and investments and development um, aid, Connectivity has been a a pillar of India's engagement with its neighboring countries and even within inside Hmm. its territory in terms of connecting with the Northeast, Hmm. right? So there are different layers to it. Now, the Belt and Road, right? So I'd mentioned that the Belt and Road Initiative uh, has five layers of connectivity. The European Union, they too have announced their vision Hmm. of connectivity, which puts an emphasis on sustainability. And they too have prioritized three or four different types of connectivities, Mm. right? And broadly, they are classified, or the terminology that we use, it broadly classifies connectivity into people-to-people networks, Mm. cultural engagement, trade and infrastructure, uh, trade and investment, Mm. financial connectivity, Mm. and then physical in connectivity. And this ranges from roads, railways, ports, energy infrastructure, digital infrastructure. Mm. Yeah. yeah um, I remember when I was looking at the China-Pakistan e- Economic Corridor, CPEC, um, at some point in time, uh, China was saying, we're also going to be providing security cameras and internet connectivity. And all of this comes under the concept of digital corridors. And then um, at one point in time, I was thinking, how many things can you subsume? Subsume under under this large large project. So you know, just talking about digital connectivity, there's also satellite connectivity. So China, of course, is trying to launch its own regional Mm -hmm. uh, global navigation uh, or its you know navigation system regional right now, but soon to become global. And all the Belt and Road countries, Mm -hmm. or all the countries that are participating in the Belt and Road, and will see fiber optics being laid down, Mm -hmm. and will see technology be a part of this connectivity 
you know, um, engagement, mm. that will be another part of the picture. You know, talking about it's a vast area of mm. engagement. And if we talk about, and we can talk about it in the context of specific initiatives, mm. the Belt and Road, one of the problems or one of the issues that has been raised with Belt and Road is this very fact that it is too amorphous, that it is too huge, and that it is therefore not really conceivable, you know, at a large scale on a global map, you know, um, yeah. simply because it's really broad. Other alternatives that have been offered or that have come up or other regional initiatives or bilateral initiatives that other countries have, take, have are undertaking mm -hmm. or that they are proposing, those are much more defined. Mm -hmm. And I think this has to do with China's financial capacity and its aims and its objectives, which is part of the reason why it's so broad. There are even some people within China that question or that that say blatantly that they have no idea what the Belt and Road Initiative is. Yeah, I mean, I remember a lot of bilateral things suddenly came under Belt and Road, right? And, and then you had ideas and people saying that, you know, China has capacity in things like dredging or in building large infrastructure, infrastructure, large infrastructure projects. And um, yes. one of the reasons that uh, they've also instituted the Belt and Road as a sort of a policy is because there's no market left in China for them to continue carrying out these capabilities. But there are markets outside in which there is still demand for ports and lots of infrastructure and not really the money to sort of build it. And that's why this works as a successful policy. But again, there are so many different narratives about the Belt and Road that it's very difficult to sort of, as you mentioned before, pin it down to, oh, these are the objectives, these are the aims, these are the projects. Uh, there is no sort of central database. Well, actually, so it is actually easier to look at what is happening on the ground because you can identify, okay, these are the projects, these mm. are the objectives that one can infer mm. or it is it has been clearly stated mm. officially, right? So that is actually the easier part. It's right. when you try and put all of this together because mm. there are variations. There are variations in, for instance, uh, China's approach towards uh, connectivity or what it defines as connectivity, what it understands as connectivity in Europe mm. versus what it is doing in Africa versus what it is doing in Southeast uh, Asia. So there is there is variation to that. So when it, it, it is when you actually try and put it all together, mm. that is when there is a big question mark. What exactly will China gain out of this? Mm. Political advantage, strategic advantage? Is it about hegemonic aspirations? Is it about geopolitical considerations? Is it about its own domestic economy? So what you were referring to earlier, mm. this notion that one of the key motivations or economic uh, motivations that is cited when we mm. talk about BRI is China wanting to offload excess capacity. Yeah. You know, and I think uh, the number regularly cited is that China has been experiencing overcapacity in about 21 sectors, yes. which includes steel, mm. aluminium, you know, in the manufacturing and construction um sectors mostly. And this is one way in which is it, which it is able to do so. Hmm. You know, but that's a very specific game. Yeah. And all of what China is doing under BRI does not respond to this one objective. Yeah, I think that's what's so interesting about yes. it, to study it, um, is that it's so easy to poke holes in mm. simplistic narratives that say, oh, this is debt trap diplomacy yes. or, you know, China is going to lease out all these ports and use them for strategic yes. objectives, whatever they may Dual be. Dual use. That's the other right? Yeah, because bases. it's yeah, it's yeah. not as simple as that. And um, even if you and people are like, no, these terms are very unfair and China is going to take over all these small countries. There are lots of holes with these narratives. I think you can take each of them and 
if you analyze them, you will find, as you said, a difference in strategy. So to find sort of a macro view of connectivity and connectivity projects around the world is difficult. It's hard also because everybody's vision differs. Mm. Now, uh, when we talk about uh, if we try and we can absolutely focus on specific initiatives, mm. we can absolutely focus on the sort of regional or country specific uh, uh, approach hmm. uh, of, of China, try and suss that out. And here you'll see both problems and also varied successes. Hmm. So it, it's a two-part yeah, uh, yeah. issue, right? And we cannot forget that this speaks to the huge infrastructure gaps hmm. that exist across the world, especially yeah. in the developing world, but also in the developed world, mm. which needs to refurbish mm. a lot of their existing infrastructure to better respond to needs of climate change, to mitigate it, mitigation yeah. and uh, uh, strategies and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, I think... Um Whenever So I was in Sri Lanka last year. Mm. And uh, at that point in time, there was a lot being said about Hamantota and uh, the port at Colombo, the sea, the sea city off of Colombo. And uh, it was very interesting for me to be there and sort of uh, look at all of that. But I also think people easily forget that, you know, China's built uh, one major railway in Sri Lanka that works fairly well. Um, and therefore, even when you're looking at specific countries, it's uh, I think it's this is applicable through all of international relations, but you can pick and choose sort of points that this, make up your theories. Absolutely. But there are two two things that I want to say to this, yeah. right? So one is, of course, whatever you are seeing and responding to, it depends on where you are, mm. right? So uh, people in the U.S. or the U.S. is going to view mm. what China is doing through a specific lens. Mm. India is seeing what China is doing through its Belt and Road Initiative through a specific lens. Australia, yeah. the EU, Japan you cannot deny that there are huge problems mm. with BRI's implementation, yeah. right? And it's record as of now. This is, again, not to say that there are not areas mm. in various countries, such as in Central Asia, that have not reaped the benefit of China investing in electricity generation, which yeah. has provided them literally with light, mm. right? Uh, so you can't deny that. But at the same time, we talk about Hampantota, right? Mm. Sustainable Financing mm. is one of the big issues. You mentioned debt trap diplomacy. That is another one of the bigger concerns of China's implementation. So it's not enough to have deep pockets or it's not mm. enough to have the capacity, right, the diplomatic as well as resource capacity to go out and to enter into uh, such partnerships, bilateral engagements with, mm. these, with these countries and to, to build uh, projects. Mm. So it's not only about capability, but also about how all of these projects are being implemented. Mm. So the modus operandi. Mm. So one of the issues, of course, with China's rise, right, which has uh, spawned what uh, China likes to call uh, the China threat theory, mm. right? But basically, one of the issues with China's rise is that, that China is a different political system. Mm. It is a different economic system, yeah. right? So China, China's model of development mm. has been one that has been based on a heavy uh, hand of the state, mm. right? non-market economics. And is that something that is compatible with the existing multilateral or global economic order? Mm. It's that, is that something which is compatible with individual countries' approaches? That is, so therefore, the, the question of methodology becomes very key when we talk about connectivity practically in terms of how is it being implemented. 
Yeah, um, I agree. I think uh, there was also the question of because these are state-owned enterprises within China, a lot of them also take Chinese workers. So I think this was um, a point that came up in several African countries that it's not really Africans who are getting these jobs or reaping the benefits of the projects that are going on. Um, it is China. And that was something that came up. And I thought it was very interesting because you also have cultural differences. And this existed when... Uh, countries in the West were carrying out development projects. And it, I can see why it would exist now when China is doing the same. The only uh, difference being that China is still more of an outlier mm. simply because it the conditions or the environment mm. in which it is carrying out these projects or it's carrying out its vision mm. for development or it's exporting mm. its development approach is vastly different from what it was when the U.S. and the Transatlantic Alliance was in control or was shaping the international system. Right? All right. For those of us who don't know, how is it different? Uh, these are two countries with large amounts of money that want to carry out infrastructure or, let's say, connectivity projects, mostly subsidized by loans and at some point that the country will have to pay, right? So, all right. So uh, now we, we're going to go down into what are the... And this leads... This sort of stems from what are the problems that are perceived mm -hmm. yeah. in China's uh, methodology. Yeah. Okay. So uh, one, of course, is in terms of the uh, financing, right? Mm -hmm. So we have dependence on state-owned enterprises. And... It, First, it begins with loans mm -hmm. that are given by China's national development banks or policy mm -hmm. banks, right, to um, largely uh, state-owned enterprises, mm -hmm. right? I think central uh, state-owned enterprises account for, uh, I think, um, uh, about 50% of the BRI project, as per one estimate, okay. uh, of BRI projects by, uh, by number and 70% mm -hmm. in terms of value. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge chunk of work yeah. that is being done by state-owned enterprises. And they will more often than not contract, mm -hmm. or this is again one of the criticisms that is raised against uh, BRI, that they will more often than not contract Chinese construction companies, right, through a intransparent or non-transparent procurement process mm. and bidding process, right? And it is only when the company has been chosen that that will be made public, mm. right? And then these companies will often, will more often than not source materials from China, mm. right? Uh, bring laborers, right? Or managers, mm. right? And then the revenue, once the project is complete, right? The question of who will operate it, mm. the question of the division of revenue, because obviously these are Chinese loans and these are often um, sovereign loans mm. that are given. And these uh, are what are sovereign loans? Uh, Just for government to government loans, right. right? And they are also more often than non-concessional loans, mm. right? And there have been complaints about Chinese loans being given at higher interest mm. rates than World Bank loans or Indian lines of credit, for instance. Mm. Right. So then what is the local economy actually receiving or getting after having allowed or having received the loan? Right. And this is in terms of revenue generation. It's in terms of local labor participation. Mm -hmm. It's in terms of local local firms, you know, because if, of course, you have Chinese companies that are coming, they are obviously more competitive than local firms. So there are all these concerns that mm -hmm. they're coming up that have arisen. Uh, part of the response to BRI has been not part of, but Critically, hmm. the response from other states has effectively been on this issue of implementation. Hmm. So India, for instance, is not part of the BRI yeah. and will not be a part of BRI as long as the issue of sovereignty, sovereignty remains, right? Yeah. Because CPEC undermines 
uh, India's sovereignty and territorial integrity. But if we note Ch- India's response hmm. from the fact that it had concerns about this being a unilateral project, hmm. okay, that uh, was advanced or promoted without any consultation, and then the issue of sovereignty, hmm. it has moved on to uh, concerns of fiscal responsibility, of good governance, of transparency, of rule of law, hmm. right? So these and fiscal responsibilities. So now we're talking about money, right? So yeah. we've spent some time talking about that, right? So the uh, the alternative that, for instance, the U.S. is now offering, mm. right? It is. It has currently passed the Build Act, right. and uh, last year, and this will operationalize a U.S. international development finance corporation, okay. which seeks to crowd in private capital, hmm. because the U.S. believes, right, just as China believes in infrastructure development being a cornerstone of mm. galvanizing economic growth and development, the U.S. approach or the U.S. understanding is that private capital mm. is what galvanizes true and sustainable uh, development, right? So that's what they're trying to do, okay. right? And now we have other countries that are trying to offer up blended finance, mm. right, as another means so that the pitfalls that we have been witnessing hmm. in the implementation of BRI projects is not replicated. Those are not replicated. In a sense, I think this is good because one of the reasons I think that a lot of these developing countries are taking these loans and working with China is that there are no other alternatives. There is no one else building these projects. Um, these are countries that are solely in need of some of these connectivity projects. And I can see if there is only one player on the field, why they would go to that player. Um so in that sense, I think that uh, the U.S. passing the Build Act or other countries offering alternate systems is good because it makes sort of the connectivity market, if I could call it that, a little more competitive. Exactly. I absolutely agree. And I, China has first mover advantage, let's be yeah, honest, sure. simply because a lot of the other countries, India included, right? Mm. I mean, it, it, the connectivity agenda has sort of fallen, you know, down the ranks, right? And now it has suddenly stimulated mm. a lot of these countries to get back into the game because, of course, of the, uh, because China's coming, right? Yeah. The more there are players, the greater the scope of competition. And one could argue that all these initiatives that we talk about, these alternatives, mm. these, you could say we're comparing apples to oranges mm. simply because the scale and scope of BRI is not the same as the scale and scope of what India and Japan have offered, uh, have put on the table in, in terms the of the Asia-Africa uh, yeah. growth corridor or what the U.S. is offering in terms of the Build Act, right? Geographical scope mm. in terms of areas of engagement, in terms of methodology, in mm. terms of the principles of engagement, right? All of these differ. And while on the one hand, these countries do want to differentiate themselves, mm. right? Because they want to offer recipient countries mm. with choices. Yeah. While this is true, on the other hand, we can't deny the fact that countries like India, the U.S., European Union still have a long way to go to fully operationalize a lot of these alternatives. The AAGC, the Asia-Africa Growth Corridor, has not gotten off the ground ever since the vision document was released in 2017. Mm-hmm. The blueprint for the way forward, the roadmap, was supposed to be published by the end of last year. Hasn't yet happened. Mm-hmm. Having said that, India has made inroads a bit in terms of trilateral engagement Mm -hmm. with Japan in Africa, as well as most recently in Sri Lanka, Mm -hmm. right? With the development of, uh, among other things, uh, one of the uh, terminals at the Colombo port, right? Um, I agree. And I think, you know, even if, say, um, 
the Asia African Growth Corridor or any of the other uh, initiatives don't take off the ground. I would be happy enough if it sort of forces China to offer these countries better terms because that's the thing with weaker states, right? They rely on um, bigger states sort of playing against each they're other. Hedging. They're, yeah, they're hedging. hedging. I mean, what we've seen on the case of Malaysia, yeah. right? I mean, it backed out of the railing project. And a few months later, now it's gone back on better terms because the loan, terms of loan, that has been renegotiated, right? Yeah. So this is definitely a hedging strategy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think that's um, acceptable because as much as, you know, Africa has often been called China's second continent, for example, and um, a lot of people go, oh, India is doing so much there. But if you look at the scale of India's projects there, they're much smaller in scope. And I'm not sure it would suffice for countries that want a lot of investment and um, need a lot of capital in that sense. Um, So I understand when people say that... um, it's not in a country's best interest to take loans like ones that China is offering. But I can also see where these countries would come from and why they would want to hedge other players against each other. There's a lot to sort of unpack hmm. in this conversation, right? One of the issues is that it cannot only be a vision. It hmm. can't just be rhetoric. You have to put it into practice in order to make a difference. We talk about what are the implications of Belt and Road Initiative and China taking the lead Mm -hmm. and pursuing a certain methodology if it does not course correct, right? If it does not correct its ways, right? One of the problems is that a lot of the standards, right? We talk about norms and rules, Mm -hmm. right? A lot of how things will then get done or what is expected to be done will happen according to one player. This level of dependency creation, Mm. right, does not serve Mm. the interests of what is, you know, we talk about a multipolar, Mm. you know, world order in the making, right? But you cannot deny the fact that there are states. We are not seeing Mm. a situation of hegemony, right? Which has been one of the issues with China, and we've seen that in the pushback that it has received. Mm. Countries have been able to do so when they are actively doing so, yeah. right? Small or big. Because again, the context in which this is happening is mm. not the same as when, you know, the U.S. rose to prominence, yeah. you know, uh, to superpower status, right? So that's just one of the issues I think, you know, deserves to be unpacked when we talk about connectivity. Yeah, I think um, I agree. And just talking about India and China within the space of connectivity, you also have things like BIMSTEC, things like India that India are trying to do that also sort of focus on similar objectives. How do you think these are sort of progressing? So, um, India, so if, we, if we want to talk about India's initiatives, yeah. right? So India has been engaged more bilaterally hmm. and it is trying to get involved in sub-regional or regional initiatives, connectivity initiatives. BIMSTEC is one of them, the Bay of Bengal uh, multi-sectoral, multi-sectoral, technical, economic, and economic yeah. cooperation. Uh, and But it has been in the works since the 1990s, hmm. right? The late 1990s. And it hasn't progressed any which way. The FTA that was proposed has not come about. There are 14 sectors of engagement, but that bloats the hmm. agenda. At the moment, there is a renewed interest, hmm. of course, in Modi 2.0. Um, we saw that with the inauguration ceremony where the heads of BIMSTEC countries were invited. Yeah. And that seemed to be a signaling. Mm. Modi 2.0 is 
priorities yeah. in the neighborhood, right? But there's and only so much also, that's signaling can take you. Sorry? There's only so much that signaling Exactly, can because take there's you. a lack of funds. There's been, a, there's been bureaucratic inertia. Yeah. So there's a lot that has to be corrected mm. in India's approach. Yeah. But also, when we talk about these sub-regional projects, mm. obviously everyone has to be on the same wavelength, yeah. right? Yeah. But bilaterally, absolutely, there's a lot that India can hold itself for mm. and increase you know, it's attention mm-hmm. and in terms of, and resources, yeah, you know, yeah. and prioritize those projects. We're very active in terms of connectivity with Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to increase uh, and deliver on our promises because there's a lot that we tend to sort of say that we'll do, but we never end up. So implementation, of course, is an issue mm-hmm. that and delivering on time, mm-hmm. you know, is, is uh, an issue that um, our issues are uh, complaints that India often, often receives. Um, the one project that uh, both India and China are involved in mm. the BCIM, the Bangladesh, China, India, Myanmar mm. corridor. So that again had been in the offing way before BRI was announced. Yeah. As with many of the projects mm. that China has effectively subsumed under mm. um, this uh, broader endeavor, uh, the BCIM. And once, of course, it was announced as part of the BRI, mm. right? India would not have really moved forward with that Mm. simply because of the larger problems that the BRI posed for India as a country uh, in pursuing its national interests. But recently, or this year, post the second Belt and Road Forum, the China has removed BCIM from the list of BRI projects. That has opened up scope Mm. for India and China and Myanmar and Bangladesh to see if they can take this proposal forward. Mm. A lot will, of course, depend on the India-China bilateral. Mm. But, I mean, this is sort of one initiative that's there on the table that could, you know, maybe see Mm. engagement. Yeah, I think just bilaterally, a good place for anyone to just, like, read up is... You know that the with the budget, you can see how much the External Affairs Ministry earmarks for funds that they're giving to other countries... I think it's interesting when you take that and you sort of compare that with uh, records of the Export-Import Bank, Exim, and then you'll be able to see how much is dispersed. Mm -hmm. And that's when you really get a picture of how projects are going because we talk about in India, in certain quarters at least, as a player in a lot of these regions, as one that gives aid and so on. But it is worthwhile to go look at the Exim Bank data because you'll see the disbursement is slow. So in terms of the uh, development aid, yeah. that India has yes. given, I think it's it's definitely on the up and up. Yeah. But in terms of project hmm. um, finance disbursement, yes. And this is also a problem that uh, this is the same criticism that we can levy hmm. um, at uh, China's BRI. Yeah. Because, you know, I've mentioned the figures 1 trillion, 4 trillion, 8 trillion. As per World Bank estimate, uh, and they take into account several economic corridors hmm. uh, that uh, form part of uh, the BRI, uh, they state an estimate of about $500, $600 billion. Another estimate says that only $70 billion okay. right, is actually the amount of money that has <laughs> actually been just fresh, you know, uh, fresh projects, BRI projects, mm-hmm. not those that have, you know, that were already underway and that later on became part of uh, BRI. All right. Now, now that we're on the subject, 
So when we come back to sort of project financing, how does financing for connectivity or infrastructure or development fundamentally work with multilateral institutions? I mean, I can understand it happening with China, which is unilaterally doing some of these things. But how does it work with multilateral institutions? So I think uh, this kind of harks back to the first question, right? So in terms of if we look at the landscape of connectivity mm-hmm. initiatives, right, uh, what a primary concern has been the lack of infrastructure that exists in Mm. developing countries. And yes, connectivity has a much broader scope than just infrastructure, but infrastructure is a huge part of it. And much of BRI Mm. and much of other initiatives, alternatives that are being offered or Mm. other, you know, bilateral initiatives, regional initiatives, so on and so forth, they do focus on infrastructure. That's one of the key pillars, right? Now, we have the BRI, which is effectively a bilateral undertaking still All right. uh, between uh, primarily China and a partner country, mm-hmm. right? One of the issues has been that existing multilateral institutions, mm-hmm. right? The multilateral development banks, primary among them, of course, the World Bank Group, mm-hmm. right? But of course, but also the Asian Development Bank and also uh, European banks. You have the French bank, we have national banks yeah, right, that yeah, have been involved sure. in uh, disbursing development finance, mm-hmm. right? One of the issues has been that the funding from these banks has, over the past couple of decades, diversified. Okay, in the sense? From financing infrastructure mm-hmm. to softer infrastructure. You know, so it was about investing in human resource capacity building. It was about investing in water and health systems. And that is affected in this broadening of mandate, Hmm. which occurred in the World Bank in the late 1990s, for Hmm. instance, or in the 1990s, sometime in the 1990s, which occurred in the World Bank sometime in the 1990s, right, saw then a drop in the money that Hmm. was going towards infrastructure which helped exacerbate the problem years forward. Why was that a drop? Because you are diversifying your financing. So you're now allocating your resources towards human capacity creation, Mm -hmm. towards softer infrastructure. So it's like a pie and therefore you're just changing the way you allocate things. Exactly, exactly, right. Uh, So now, for instance, Africa, if we look at Africa, it's been estimated that they have an infrastructure need of about $130 billion, Mm -hmm. $270. Some estimates go down, um, say $100 billion. But the gap is of... 60 to 80 billion dollars per year in the asia pacific uh, the adb estimate which is often talked about right so it's 26 trillion dollars in infrastructure between now to 2030 the gap hmm. is 800 billion per year so these are huge amounts of sums that are not being provided right and we have actually seen that china hmm. and india have actually come forward with proposals uh, with institutions Hmm. that are currently in operation that are trying to meet these um, funding gaps. What institutions? So I'm talking here about the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, the China-led Asia Infrastructure Hmm. Investment Bank, and the BRICS Hmm. uh, New Development Bank. All right. So BRICS is Brazil, Russia, India, China, China South Africa. South Africa. All right. So how do these... um, institutions propose to work differently? Are they different? So AIB and NDB are absolutely different in their proposition in that they're not only seeking to supplement the spending 
All right. Right. Development finance, specifically hmm. infrastructure finance, but they are seeking to spend differently. Hmm. And here there is a, the NDB, for instance, places a uh, premium on sustainability. They focus on sustainability projects. The AIB also does that, but it is also interested in, involved in meeting hard infrastructure uh, financing needs. Right? right. Yes. And we can't ignore that these two institutions are not led by traditional powers, hmm. any one of the Western developed economies. Yeah. So in that, they're, of course, different. AIB is also particular in that even though it uh, began as an initiative, as a proposal by China, there was a quick buy-in mm. from European countries, mm -hmm. which sort of opened the gates. And today, from I think, what, 57 founding members, AIB uh, membership has today 100 hmm. uh, members, approved members. I get that. But how is that different from organizations like the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, APEC? Is that APEC? Yeah. Um, or even the ADB. Or I mean, how does it matter that these are led by non-Western countries? So the AIB and NDB are particular, are important additions in this uh, multilateral development bank landscape or mm. this um, international financial institution architecture, simply because, for one, they herald a change within this particular landscape mm. in that they we are seeing a diffusion of power over development policy. All right. Secondly, having said that, they are still very much nested within the existing architecture mm. in that we're not seeing an alternative mm. to what currently exists. We're only seeing a change in the system itself. All right. Right? Um, a third reason why these institutions herald change from previous status quo is their mandate. Mm. Right? AIB and NDB both seek to learn from their predecessors, but improve. Mm -hmm. So AIB has its mandate of being clean, a lean, clean, and green. All right. right. So they have no, they want to cut down on costs. Mm -hmm. They want to make the process less bureaucratic. They want to increase the pace at which projects are approved, which currently I think is in a period of six months, mm -hmm. whereas the ADB is about a couple of years. All right. uh, so there's definitely that aspect. It's expected to be transparent. It's expected to be sustainable. There's, mm -hmm. there's a large emphasis on sustainability here. AIB's pr priorities are cross-border infrastructure, mm -hmm. private capital, mm -hmm. and sustainable infrastructure. All right. right. And as for the NDB, the NDB seeks to mobilize. So just uh, a second. So the NDB is the new development yes. bank of BRICS. Yes. All right. Yes. And the NDB is particular because it also is doing the same thing in terms mm -hmm. of wanting to learn uh, from the experiences of existing and established institutions and wanting to improve on them. And it offers a very unique model right. in that while the AIIB follows a staggered vote-sharing structure, hmm. like World Bank, like the IMF, like right. any other multilateral development banks, BRICS, in that there are five current members, hmm. it has divided, it has equal voting shares among right. all the members, right? Okay. When, as and when new members join, hmm. right, that will, of course, no longer be the case. Hmm. The BRICS members will retain majority, 55%, but still, as of now, this and NDB's functioning, hmm. given this new sort of principle mm -hmm. of engagement when it comes to members, right? I mean, it 
it's something interesting that is happening, mm. which could advance a different norm mm. of equity among members when it comes to particular areas mm. of investment finance, mm. for instance. You know, that's overreaching because these uh, institutions uh, are three, three and a half years old, mm. both of them, but they are both showing steady and increasing engagement in terms of the capital allocations, in terms of um, projects, mm. and in terms of buy-in, as well as acceptance from the international community. They've both gotten top ratings mm. from the investor, from the credit rating, from the international credit rating agencies. And uh, they've also been successful in participating in capital markets. The AIIB actually uh, just priced its first global bond. Oh, okay. Which successfully placed its first uh, global bond, which is a sign of positive investor sentiment mm. in AIB and its functioning. That's very interesting because I was wondering where these organizations were sort of getting their funds from because I, I, I think the countries yeah. themselves, right? right? So all the members they have, and their their votes are allocated based on how much capital contribution they have made. Mm. Right? All right, okay, yes. so that makes sense. That, but then, uh, but just in terms of the raising capital, mm. right? Um, the NDB, another particular, is the fact that the NDB it emphasizes mm. a focus on local currency. Oh, you know, okay. use of local currency, right? And this is, of course, something that we don't see because it's all dollar-denominated, mm. you know, loans and grants, et cetera, right? So this is, again, something which is different, that, mm. that we're seeing just different from the established uh, institutions. Yeah, that's great. I mean, these organizations really seem to be signaling a breakthrough in the way international financing sort of seems to be happening. So right now, so far, the capital allocations made by AIB and NDB are nowhere to the tune to what the ADB mm. and the World Bank, of course, has dispersed, right? But uh, there is a steady increase, as mm. I mentioned. There's a steady increase in its, uh, in its, uh, in the number of projects and its allocations, and it bodes well mm. for them making a mark, mm. you know? Uh, and obviously, the NDB is much smaller than the AIB, mm. and even if it becomes a niche institution that focuses on innovation that mm. focuses on sustainable infrastructure that focuses on i mean one of the ndb's uh, mandates mm. uh, is that 60% of all of its financing will go to renewable energy mm. so even if it focuses in niche areas it can still make a difference okay so over the last two decades you have a bunch of groupings that have come up that want to do things differently that aim to do things differently but are they actually able to carry it through are they actually able to execute um, the way projects are done in a different manner than it is traditionally? So if we actually pick up from the example of World Bank and AIB and NDB, the issue is one of exercising institutional agency. Mm. Well, agency, and then hopefully translating that into something concrete, which would be institutional agency. Mm. Right? So the question that is being asked is, these are my priorities. Does the current global economic order or the existing multilateral economic system meet those needs? Mm. And if not, how can I change them? And do I have the capacity to change uh, the status quo? Can I bandwagon with a partner developing country? Can I or with other like minded nations, right? 
So that is one aspect that it has to be about institutional agency. And yes, you're right that in the past couple of decades, we have definitely seen a flourishing of groupings, what we call mini laterals, hmm. right? And also plurilaterals, that just because a country is part of one particular grouping does not mean to say that it cannot be equally part of other groupings. All right. right? Now, effectively, if you look at the multilateral landscape, one could even call it, if we take a step back, right, mm. one could even call this a fracturing of sorts okay. of multilateralism, where it is effectively regionalism. And I I'm, I sort of hesitate to use this word because regionalism comes with its own connotations, yeah. but in the sense that we have these regional, sub-regional groupings that are, that are coming up, functional mm. or geographical, that are not. Hmm. that are made up of different actors yeah. or different set of actors, different permutations and combinations of partnerships mm -hmm. and of interests. Regional trade agreements mm -hmm. is one example. They cover mm -hmm. about half of world trade at the moment. And this proliferation fits into this whole idea of minilateralism and sort of breakup of, of this fracturing of sort of broader multilateral space. While this is happening, however... When I mentioned there's a fracturing of multilateralism, today we're also talking about the crisis of multilateralism, right? So do countries actually have continued faith in the multilateral economic architecture? Because we're focusing on economic architecture, so we'll stick with that, right? Do they have? Do they continue to have faith in it? Economic globalization is seeing a huge backlash with economic nationalism, with protectionism, and Global growth is still stagnant. It's still uncertain. Um, the period of hyper-globalization that we saw before the global financial crisis is over. And therefore, I think this represents both a challenge and an opportunity. Mm -hmm. The world is no longer as it was before. Part yeah. of the change that we are witnessing is this rise and fall respective to one another mm -hmm. in terms of power and capacities. We talk about rising powers, emerging powers. We talk about regional powers and a shift that is happening economically, but also strategically mm -hmm. eastward and southward. As new actors come on stage, there will obviously be new agenda items mm -hmm. and new priorities that are put on the table. And It'll be interesting to see what new dispensations these new as well as old actors come up with because it's not as straightforward or as simple or as straightforward enough to say that, okay, now it's all about new when the old has no longer has a place because we're still living in the architecture set by the post-World War Bretton Woods system, Bretton Woods system and uh, the U.S.-led economic architecture. And the question is also one of whether these new entrants or these countries with uh, or emerging economies, whether they are rising powers, whether they're actually seeking to reform mm. or are they actually seeking to challenge mm. the existing system. Modi, for instance, very recently has just talked about reforming multilateralism, mm. right? And that's part of that. That is definitely on the agenda as we want to improve the, uh, the system that is in place in the architecture and the institutions that exist in there. Like I said, I think it's going to be an opportunity and a challenge mm -hmm. to see how these smaller groupings engage with bigger groupings, how they are juxtaposed vis-a-vis -vis one another and against the broader global landscape. All right. Um, this is my last question for you. Uh, but for anyone who's interested in reading more about um, multilateral economic organizations, about uh, connectivity, um, what would you recommend? 
So connectivity and multilateralism, they're both vast sort of areas, and there's plenty of uh, information, opinion, analysis out there. Uh, I just like to uh, bring to attention uh, databases that can come in handy for people looking to glean information about Belt and Road Initiative. So we have the Reconnecting Asia Project, mm-hmm. um, the CSIS. Then there is the China Investment Tracker by the A. EI. Mm-hmm. We have um, uh, the aid data. Mm-hmm. They have cataloged information uh, of China Chinese aid mm-hmm. and China's uh, economic flows right. to Africa uh, and other places. Um, we also have Marco Polo and we have people affiliated with that institute who are actually traveling mm-hmm. along routes uh, that come under BRI. Mm-hmm. So they're offering firsthand uh, evidence and uh, reports of their travels. So these are just a few places to start. And the World Bank in the last year has actually done a study uh, of the Belt and Road Initiative. And they've taken, I think, a look at uh, um, several economic corridors. Mm-hmm. And so that, I think, is also a, a huge uh, pool of information and structured analysis that can be looked into. All right. Thank you so much, Ritika. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. That's it for this episode of States of Anarchy. Thanks for staying with us till the end. If you want to read more about connectivity and the Belt and Road Project, I've attached a bunch of resources for you in the episode description. So you can just scroll down over. If you want to dive deeper into some of the topics that we discuss on States of Anarchy, whether it's in public policy or foreign policy, I suggest you check out some of the policy courses at the Takshashila Institution. They're of varying lengths, so you can choose depending on your interest, and you can attend the classes from home. So do check those out. Just a small note about this episode. Generally, the last week of the month is a roundup of all the international news. But because of Diwali, I'm doing this roundup on the next episode on November 5th. If you have any comments or questions, you can reach out to me at the rate Hamsni H on Twitter and at the rate States of Anarchy on Instagram. You can listen to States of Anarchy, not only on the IBM podcast app and website, but wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next Tuesday. Hello, everybody. We have a brand new daily podcast we're working on with Bloomberg Quint. All You Need to Know provides the top news on business, markets, and the economy so that you can stay ahead of the curve. Tune in every morning on BloombergQuint.com, the IVM podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Namaste. I am Saurabh Chandra. And I am Pranay Kutistan. जब महफिल खत्म होते होते दरवाजे के बाहर पुलिया के ऊपर हम दुनिया भर की जटिल समस्याओं को सॉल्व करने में लग जाते हैं तो हो जाती है पुलियाबाजी अब आजकल के अपार्टमेंट वालों ने तो कभी पुलिया देखी नहीं होगी पर आप फीलिंग तो समझ ही सकते हैं तो आइए शामिल हो जाइए हमारी पुलियाबाजी में जहां प्रणय और मैं एक से एक इंटरेस्टिंग टॉपिक्स की तह तक जाएंगे आर्टिफिशियल इंटेलिजेंस बिटकॉइन पाकिस्तान मेडिकल एजुकेशन करेंसी क्राइसिस कभी हम दोनों के साथ और अक्सर स्पेशल एक्सपर्ट गेस्ट की कंपनी में सुनिए हमें आईवीएम की वेबसाइट ऐप या अपने फेवरेट पॉडकास्टिंग प्लेटफॉर्म पर हर दूसरे हफ्ते